This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains spoilers. Check the episode description to see the exact times of the segments that contain spoilers. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Vulture TV Podcast. I'm your host, Gazelle Mommy. On this week's show, we'll talk hour-long comedies and two of the most interesting ones on TV right now, Jane the Virgin and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. That's all coming up, but first, if you have any questions for us or ideas for topics you'd like to hear, please email us at tvquestions at vulture.com. And if you're a fan of the podcast and you're in the New York area, we'd love to see you at the live taping of the Vulture TV podcast as part of the 2015 New York Television Festival. That's coming up on Saturday, October 24th at 1 p.m. at the Helen Mills Theater and Event Space on West 26th Street. You can get free tickets at nytvf.com. As usual, we're here with... Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and TV critic Matt Zoller Seitz. Hey, Gazelle. Hello. Hi, guys. So, we had two really fun shows premiere on Monday night, both on the CW, and they're both hour long comedies Crazy Ex Girlfriend and Jane the Virgin. So, we wanted to start off the show today talking a little bit about hour long comedies because we don't see many of them. First of all, I, I'm curious do you guys think of these as comedies in a pure sense? I guess, although it's funny, I, whenever I do a list at the end of the year of the best episode, individual episodes of shows, I always do it. I do a list for comedy and a list for drama, and a lot of times there is some dispute when I include things on, under comedy. It's like, well, is this really a comedy, like Girls mm-hmm. or Louie? Right. Then you have the thirty-minute-long kind of yeah. Drama. Essentially, it's sort of like yeah. Comedy. It's basically kind of funny some of the time, and it happens around thirty minutes. But it's not a drama in the way that other sort of kind of heavy-duty doom and gloom type shows are. And I was thinking about uh, you know as I was coming in here, Parenthood. Mm. Parenthood, I guess, is classified as a drama, but it has certainly has a lot of comedy on it. And I don't know if I would necessarily pigeonhole it in one category or the other. So it's it's tough. Parenthood is definitely a drama. You are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, like, I think it has, like, antic moments, but I think it's, like, very clearly a drama to me versus something like Transparent, which I think is a sort of tougher call or, um, you know, Orange is the New Black, tougher call. Uh, yeah, and Orange, and Orange is the New Black, which I think became, I think it's the only show to award an actor an Emmy in, for playing the same character in both comedy and drama. It's a little tricky, though, because it gets a little more difficult for me to classify certain shows just as mainly one thing or the other, and it's partly my own subjective reaction to them. I feel like at times Jane the Virgin really does feel kind of sitcom-y, and so does Crazy Ex-Girlfriend based on the first episode we've seen. I mean, I think Jane the Virgin fits much more comfortably in the telenovela category, mm-hmm. which it is explicitly, but I think because it has sort of an ironic spin on that, it's not a pure telenovela the way... It's source material maybe is. It's weird. It's like a metafictional telenovela. Like yeah. the way they're telling the story and the way, like, not only have the the third person narrator, who I, I, I guess is the person writing the show, based <laughs> on the way that the, 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 yeah. the title cards are constantly being revised and, like, describing somebody some way and then going back and erasing that and writing. And it was like, no. 
He's probably the biggest source of humor on that show. Yeah. I mean, him and I Rogelio. I laugh a lot at Jane the Virgin. That said, I cry at every episode of Jane the Virgin. Like, it's a very <laughs> emotional show. And I think they traffic in a lot of, like, genuine emotional truth, which maybe is something that comedy has a harder time with or you don't associate as strongly with what happens in a comedy. Like a capital C, obvious sitcom comedy. You know, mm-hmm. you don't really look to those shows necessarily for these, like, resonant emotional beats that I think Jane the Virgin has a lot of. And yet, here's another curious thing. In the process, I'm working on this anthology of great TV shows with my friend Alan Sevenwall, and we got together this weekend to work on it together, and we were writing and going over some of the entries for things that are in the pantheon, like the top you know, shows, and one of those was, shockingly, The Sopranos. But it, it, going back and re-watching a lot of these episodes, I was surprised by how much of a comedy it was. Hmm. Like, often to the exclusion of what we think of as obviously drama. Like, yes, there's, of course there's drama. Like, there's really heavy, and, you know, particularly a lot of the violence and, and, and intrigue and stuff. But probably four-fifths of the time when you were watching an episode of The Sopranos, you were laughing, and it reminded me of something that Steve Van Sant said to me in an interview before the pilot had aired, I said, how would you describe this show to somebody who's trying to get ready to watch it for the first time? And he said, it's the gangster honeymooners. <laughs> and, and I thought he was being glib at first, but then the longer the show went on, the more I saw that it does, in fact, have something in common with sitcoms, like the way that it's structured and the things that it values. And if you watch The Sopranos and then you go watch Seinfeld and you sort of alternate episodes of those two shows, it's astounding how many similarities they have yeah. in terms of the theme. Better Call Saul is another show that kind of toes this line a bit. Do you find it more funny or more dramatic? <laughs> I don't know. And, and I think about that, you know, is it funny, ha-ha, or, what, you know, what kind of funny is it? Mm-hmm. Better Call Saul is sometimes funny, ha-ha, but a lot of times it's funny in a you-have-to-laugh-so-you-don't-cry sort of way. <laughs> and that's something where if you describe a, a story that is in that mode to people as a comedy, a good number of people will say, that doesn't really feel like a comedy to me. Yeah. You know, because it's so, it's very melancholy a lot of the times. Sometimes it's just depressing. That gets into something we've talked about, which is the sad comedy. Like, Louis kind of made that more of a thing with the with 30-minute comedies that we see. And Yeah, I mean, I think Arrested Development is, like, one of the saddest shows I've ever seen. Mm. And when people, yes. like, like, I obviously think it's an excellent show, but it's not something that I, like treasure and that's like sort of an idea we talk about a lot like the difference between a show that you like personally love and a show you have like deep esteem for and I have deep esteem for Arrested Development but like I find it really sad and depressing and just like so miserable and broken and like there's so much like like to me very like literal sadness on that show yeah that it's hard to be like ah, it's like oh god it's so bad like <laughs> like give them a hug like it you is. should be nicer to your children like i just like it makes me like too sad <laughs> and like, there I just is, think it's really sad and there is a whole subcategory of comedies and and you know in movies as well as on tv that i call radio with pictures you know because you're a lot of the times you can't even stand to look at the show. You have to kind of listen to it. Like you're shielding your face with your hands and you're kind of half watching it but mostly listening to it mm-hmm. because what's happening is just so mortifying. And and um, I just wrote a, a little thing on the Larry Sanders show oh, that is for, the, like... for the book. And you see, like, <laughs> I wish you could see this because Margaret actually seized up when I said the name of that I show. Like I Again, a show, I, well, I actually do like love Larry Sanders more than other comedies maybe in this category, but I... I hate cringe. Well, the comeback is also the cringe. Really yeah, that's difficult. a cringe. Oh, that's too hard for me. There, yeah. You know, the cringe. The list of the cringiest shows of all time would definitely include the comeback. Definitely include Larry Sanders. Definitely include um, probably Dream On, which the is Office. You know, the Office. Both versions of the Office. Oh, for sure. 
And uh, girls, oh my God, girls is like a you know stick a corkscrew in your in your torso and twist it for half an hour a lot of the time. And Louis, and Louis is just like, oh my God, what a sad sack that person is. It's unbelievable. That said, like the things that make me think of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Jane the Virgin as maybe not being comedies isn't that they're very sad because these shows are not sad at all. No, they're not. I do feel better classifying both of those shows as comedies. Yeah, because yeah. I think like the sort of fundamental fiber of them is meant to be delighted in in a way that I think the fundamental aspect of drama. You may or may not delight in the experience, but that they're like what the sort of show sets out to do is going to be something a little different than that. Do you think that the the distinguishing characteristic of comedy, the label comedy, is delight? Oh, like in a way that makes people comfortable calling something a comedy. Um. Okay. This is like gather round for Margaret's overthinking corner. I love Margaret's <laughs> Stoke overthinking your beards, corner. Get your pipes. <laughs> um, I think like. Okay, this is real nerdy. But laughter as an animal response used to be thought of as a sign of domination submission, right? That if you laughed, that that meant you were being like submissive to the alpha. But now the thinking is that maybe laughter is a sign of cooperation. Think of how rarely you laugh alone. It has to be something really funny for you to like openly laugh (laughs) by yourself, right? right? Versus watching something in a group or in a movie theater or whatever where you like do laugh even if you don't think it's that funny, right? So like laughter as sign of cooperation makes me think of comedy more as like a collaborative team kind of thing, right? Like you're laughing. That's what a laugh track is for is to create a nexus between you and what's happening on stage so you feel like you're part of it, right? And drama doesn't need to create a nexus because it doesn't need you to cooperate in the same way that comedy requires cooperation. You have to be like cooperating with the story in a way for comedy to like be able to sort of hit you on that like laughter level or even just like amazement level, right? But a drama, you don't have to cooperate with it as much because, you know, like the laughter response isn't at all activated necessarily. So you're going to have these moments of watching a drama that can be very rich, very poignant, very interesting, fascinating, all of these things, you know, like your synapses are firing in all these ways, but not in that sense of collaboration, cooperation, intimacy. Wow, I hadn't thought of it that, that is way. That's fascinating. It's yeah. true. There you go, nerds. <laughs> Eat it up. No, that's so. that's a great way of putting it. And I was thinking about all the times that I've watched not just movies in theaters, but sometimes television shows, like of premieres or events at the Paley Center or whatever. And the cooperation you're talking about definitely comes through at events like those. And it off, it almost always centers around comedy. Well, why don't we talk about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? But first, let's take a little break and hear a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, We're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, um, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. So Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is a show I think we're all really excited about. For those who aren't familiar with it, it follows a successful Manhattan lawyer, Rebecca Bunch. She runs into her ex-boyfriend from high school. He was her boyfriend for like a summer, Josh Chan. And she basically decides to move to West Covina to 
try to win him over. And the show is, you know, it's it's a it's a lot of things. It's a romantic comedy, it's a musical, but there's a lot of darker undertones to it. I noticed that people on Twitter reacted to it either like loving it or being really confused by it. <laughs> they're like, you know, they're like, wait, what? Because the title may, might make you think it's going to be something other than what it is. Why don't we start off by playing a clip from the episode that gets across kind of its sense of humor? This is a clip of our protagonist, Rebecca, getting ready before she goes on a date. So that's a song, you guys, right? I think a lot of people didn't know that it was a musical. I didn't. Um, I didn't. I didn't get the memo on that. I don't know how that happened, but I just put it in. I was like, oh, it's a new CW comedy. And then she starts singing, and I think my head actually detonated, and I had to <laughs> go pick up the pieces and put them back together. I didn't. I just did not expect that. It's great. That's one of the aspects of the show I think is super essential to like understanding how the show operates. Also, the star and creator of the show, Rachel Bloom, she has a pretty robust YouTube presence. My favorite of her songs is Fuck Me, Ray Bradbury. That's what it was like a big hit a couple years ago. She also did historically accurate Disney princess song. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of these like romantic pop culture tropes that she just completely turns on their head. She is amazing. She's super Really amazing. Like Ace is musically, comedically, dramatically like she's great. The show winds up being a little cartoony. I think that's sort of like its aesthetic. We have this like very these big emotional moments that are supported by big musical numbers and then that gives us the sort of buoyancy to get in these like much like darker themes about like first of all like the misogynist slur of crazy ex-girlfriend right? Like I think a lot of people had a really negative reaction to that as a title. I certainly saw a lot of my friends on Facebook be like, Bleh, like how could the CW do a show like this? Or like this is a really offensive title. And this sort of like, I think it, it is a title with a lot of baggage. And I, it's hard to talk about like a show's title being relevant. But I do worry that like some people who would otherwise really enjoy this show were immediately turned off by the yeah. title or the ad campaign. I heard sort of like a lot of feedback just from friends when they're like, oh, what's your, like what show should I watch this fall? I'm like, oh my God, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Universally, people were like, what? Yeah. I mean, the subway ads were not great. (laughs) And yet, you know, it's funny. This is another example of what we were talking about at the top of the podcast, where a thing that is thought of or billed as a comedy doesn't get as much creative credit as something that is billed as or described as a drama. And and the comparison I would make is Mr. Robot. Because I feel like Mm -hmm. what we're seeing when we're watching the show is a subjective representation of her world. This is not meant to be taken literally any more than the world of Mr. Robot is. And that's another show where the title really turned people it off really at first. It really turned people off. It did. <laughs> yeah. But I think, like, you know, in terms of what they are doing with the way they are telling the story, it's equally sophisticated. It just that this happens to star a woman and it's billed as a comedy, so we're not seeing a bunch of think pieces yet. Yeah. And they both yet. deal with mental illness in really interesting ways. They do. Ways. And that scene where you see her, and it's, a, it's interesting that they play a lot of the action in a wide shot of her taking out her pills, and she has quite a few bottles of them, and pouring the pills down the sink and turning the garbage disposal on, there's deliberate action being made, like her decision to quit just to set up the plot a little bit more. She's a lawyer. She's offered the chance to be a junior partner at her firm in New York. She throws it away for a chance to go out to West Covina and chase her ex-boyfriend. It's a completely impulsive decision, and it is basically deliberately destroying everything that she has created. But I feel like there's something else going on here besides her wanting to be with her ex-boyfriend. 
Yeah, you know, yeah. it's not. It's clearly that's not everything it's about. It's like in in a way, it almost reminded me of this great Albert Brooks movie, Lost in America, where. He and his wife, played by Julie Haggerty, are comfortable yuppies. They've got a, a nice house in the suburbs. They both have stable jobs. And then one day they decide to sell their house, take their nest egg, sink it all into a giant Winnebago and tour the United States and attribute to Easy Rider. And, like, things only get worse from there. But but I feel like there's a rejection of the status quo. There's, a, there's like, a deliberate annihilation of what, what she is supposed to have as a professional woman. It's not just about the boyfriend or the mental illness. No. She says repeatedly, you know, Josh just happens to live here. Right. And that's obviously, like, a denial joke. But we have very early in the pilot, in like the first minute and a half, we see her at theater camp, which is where she knows Josh from. Right. And we hear her mom complain that she was supposed to go to mock trial camp, but instead she went to drama camp, which, which right. she really liked. Mm-hmm. I forgot and about And then that. everything sort of falls apart because Josh dumps her right at that moment. And then we sort of see we're now 10 years in the future, and she's done everything that her mom said. She then wound up going to mock trial camp from there on out, mm-hmm. and now she's a lawyer, just like her mom had told her that she wanted her to be. And we have all this stuff where Rebecca is like like throwing away the life that she didn't want in the first place. Right. The hook is throughout the pilot, when was the last time you were happy is like an ad she sees. Repeatedly. And then she she sees it over and over again. And what she remembers is singing I'm in love with a wonderful guy at theater camp. And that's the refrain we hear over and over, right? I'm in love. Right, because that's from I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love with a wonderful guy, right? Yeah. So like that's the song. So that's what she keeps hearing. And it's not just that like, oh, I miss Josh Chan from 10 years ago. It's like that was the last time I was happy, right? So I think like the sort of crazy ex-girlfriend aspect of it, the idea that she's doing this for Josh is like a thread of the show. And what she's really doing is like picking a life that she actually wants. And, you know, she's met with surprise and, and sort of dismissiveness from the people she meets in West Covina. Her, like, why would you throw all that away? And to her, it's like, what's all that? Like, I didn't want any of that. I didn't like it. Yeah, what I was did miserable. It like, is it really crazy to, to cast off a life you don't want? Or is it crazier to just keep going along with it? And I think it's crazier to have a life you don't enjoy. Yeah. Absolutely. Can we also talk about her? I mean, I don't believe Josh Chan is necessarily going to stay her romantic interest, but it's really great to see a hot Asian guy as the romantic is- interest yeah. that drives the plot of the show. And and I, such a dude, too. Such a He's dude. such a dude. He's such I mean, a consummate dude. It's, it's almost, Even the way he walks away, like the, the specific gait yeah, that he has is like dude I times mean, 40. It's refreshing to see an Asian man objectified, you know? <laughs> like, because it's it's just a di- like, you know, it's kind of objectification in the best kind of way. It's not, it's it's not, not what really. is, it's not what's usually done. Yeah. The other element I like about the show is that it's set in suburbia in Southern California, which is where I grew up. And... I'm hoping that we'll get to see more of the multiculturalism of the area because, I mean, Asians are a huge part of the culture there. And, like, I think the show is, like, doing really new and interesting ways, new and interesting things in a number of different ways. But I do think uh, that's a show that escaped a lot of people's first round watching, maybe. So Mm -hmm. I would encourage you to seek out ways to catch that pilot because we just... Like, we all watch so many of the same shows and shows that are telling similar stories in similar ways with similar casts and similar settings. And it's always such an exciting surprise to see a show really strike out on its own. And that's and, that's what I look for when I when I really become enamored with the show. It's usually because the show has a voice. And, and when I tell people that a show has a voice, a lot of times they don't know what I'm trying to get at. And what I mean is it's different from a tone. Like, every show mm-hmm. has a tone. A voice is something much richer. A voice is like a narrative voice, like the voice of a novelist, you know, or or a playwright. 
And this show has a voice, like as Mr. Robot had a voice, as The Americans has a voice, Hannibal had a voice, Mad Men, you know, a lot of the great shows have voices that are really singular and really, really strong. And this one in the pilot seems to have that. The question is, can they sustain Mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. How do you think it handles the, you know, the crazy label, which is a label that's negatively applied to women a lot of the time? Like, because it's engaging with that word in a different way than we are used to. Do you think it does a good job? The phrase is problematic, as they say now, um, but I feel like they're up to something. I don't want to. I don't want to render a judgment on that at this point because we've only seen the pilot. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, based on the evidence of what we see in the pilot, I cannot imagine that that title is meant to be taken literally or in one way. Right. Like there's some th- there's some metaphorical dimension to that that has not been articulated yet, and I can only assume will be as the show goes on. And it has something to do with. Her decision to throw away the life that was kind of chosen for her in certain ways and that she's expected to want and to be satisfied with and to chase something else. And she doesn't even know if it's going to work or not. She doesn't even, she doesn't even know why she's doing it. And the throwing away of the medication is a very significant scene, I think, because they don't show you what, what the labels on those pill bottles, but presumably they're behavioral modification. Mm-hmm. Drugs are you know, meant to control your emotions or channel them or something. And she's getting rid of those and, and throwing away the constraints of her professional life and throwing away the, the chemical constraints on her body chemistry are happening at the same time. And that's no accident. You know, there must be right. something to that. I mean, I think it's a tough title, right? Like, I think that's part of it. Like, that's the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it's a very attention-grabbing title. You know, if it was just West Covina, I don't know that it would have the same, like, record scratch <laughs> moment. Um, that said, like, I think it's possible to like reclaim terminology it doesn't always work and it's not always a thing but that's that is one avenue that exists i also think like the show is very comfortable presenting rebecca in all of these sort of bad ways because we're very drawn to her no matter what i think like part of that is rachel's performance like i think right like the performance here is fantastic and and we feel so much for rebecca because we're seeing the show through her eyes and and so we have like the sort of instant amount of empathy for her but i think the show is also really comfortable with saying like these behaviors are not like salutable like the like a lot of these are bad behaviors and like (laughs) you shouldn't do that or when she says like oh i just told my dad i was having suicidal thoughts so he would like come back from his honeymoon or whatever right like right that's a like dude don't do that like that's a real cry for help moment from a teenager but like that's also not great right right and so we see these sort of like hallmarks of bad behavior as part of like a texture of her whole personhood right that she is she has done like not great things crazy things and she also has like you know other emotions too and i think that's one of the ways that it's sort of subverting that that identity of crazy ex-girlfriend is that like she's not we see her you know she sends the text and she's like waiting by the phone that said like I mean, it's I don't honest. know that dude doesn't yeah. know. What, is that a crazy thing to do? To I know. That was actually that. a cringe comedy moment for me. I've done that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, come on. You know, I, like, yeah. That's what I like that. about it is that it kind of focuses on these things we aren't used to looking at. But we all know we do them. But we, we're all a little crazy in that sure. way. I mean, when it comes crazy, to relationships. The sexy getting ready song yeah. is like a documentary. Yeah. It's also like about the, you know, how women can't help but do these things because of the society we live in. Yeah, you're obligated and, to perform yeah, these aspects of you, femininity with and and the social cost of not performing them is tremendous, but then when you do do them, you're held up as absurd. Yes. So it's like, oh, it's so dumb that women wear, you know, spanks. Like who would want to be in physical discomfort all day? And then if you don't, there's like Wow, that's kind of a lumpy outfit or whatever. We're like, right? <laughs> right. There's like all these sort of like no win propositions, and I think to like embody and portray that 
like how could that not make anyone crazy like it is crazy right. making. it exactly. is frustrating right. you do feel like you're in like a unwinnable battle is there anything you thought was weak about this pilot it just didn't get to everyone right mm-hmm. like i think there's we want to hear more from our different characters I want to see the sort of like more fleshed out world of West Covina, but like that's a pi- you know it's a pilot. That it's a pilot. You got They had a lot of work to do, and I th- yeah. think they did it pretty well. The big risk of a show like this is the same risk as a show that's built largely around the perceptions of any single character, which is: Are we going to get tired of her? Are we going to get tired of of not of her the character or her the actress, but of seeing the world mainly through one lens? You know, is this voice going to wear us out after I think, a while? Like, the show that it reminds me the most of is Wonder Falls, which is one of my favorite. That's high praise for me. Like, that's one of my favorite shows of all time. And it has, like, a similar kind of vibe in that we have our main female protagonist who's overeducated and underemployed, as as Rebecca now sort of is at this sort of lower-tier law firm, mm. who's having this really weird like unexplainable moment. So in Wonder Falls, it's that she starts hearing like inanimate animal objects talk to her and sort of give her these like weird, like puzzling koans. Such a great show. But yeah, it's so good. Uh, One of of the stranger premises of all time. But but really driving at, and I think Crazy Ex-Girlfriend has a similar idea of like, if this is the life I have and it's not the life I want, what happens to happen between that and this? Where, like, what is the transition? And, And Wonder Falls is set for a younger character. She's like much closer to college graduation and that sort of feeling of like how am I supposed to be a grown-up when those things don't seem available to me in any meaningful way and I think in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend we have like how am I like she's much further along in being like an adult but she's very trapped in the way that Jay feels very trapped and trying to sort of break out of whatever you feel like your silo is is crazy making and, and you people do think of you as crazy and if you have whatever your life looked like and you want something else and do something else everyone box. Yes. So the other show we're discussing today is Jane the Virgin. And this is a show where I feel like we have really gotten to care about all of the characters. We feel bonded with them. Oh, yeah. Why don't we talk about the premiere of the second season of Jane the Virgin, which aired right after Crazy Ex-Girlfriend on the CW. So we left off last season with Jane's baby getting stolen. And we pick up this season with that same plot line happening, but it resolves itself pretty quickly. What did you guys think of that? I was relieved, honestly, because I, like, I love Jane the Virgin. I'm all in for Jane the Virgin. But I actually have, like, like if I was going to rank, like, what stories I care about the most, like, Sun Rostro is the absolute bottom. Yeah. Like, right. I, I, I get why it's a good, like, engine to move story forward and stuff, but I, I actually care the least about those mechanics. Right. So the idea that, like, Mateo having this, like, central role in the Sin Rostro story, I was like, oh, gosh. Like, I just didn't want that to be such a thing, and I was glad that it resolved so quickly <laughs> because I want to get on with the emotional arcs much more so than I want to get on with the the really soapy telenovela arcs, which I under like I'm not saying they shouldn't be in the show. I no. think the show needs them as as cartilage or whatever, but it's the part that I that is my least favorite. And I was glad that we kinda we got our Sin Rose Joe story in, but we didn't have to dwell. I thought it was funny that the uh, previously on uh, synopsis seemed to go on for a day. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There was really a lot, a lot of plot, like em- empire level yeah. chewing through plot. And uh, yeah, that's great. And yeah, the resolution of the baby, the baby kidnapping plot line was kind of tossed off, which I thought was appropriate. Yeah, you know, it felt right. And it's funny how the show keeps acknowledging these telenovela sort of storytelling devices, uh, but then undermining them in a really, really 
funny way, like to throw them away almost. Yeah, and then yeah. to move on to really mundane drama. Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I think the show well, in a, that's still really fascinating, not yeah. to, not as a criticism. I mean, I think the fact that the show references telenovelas so often. So, like we had in season one, uh, Rogelio was on a telenovela. Jane wrote an episode. Yes, um, and there was like a scene where it like goes to show like how I think sharp this show can be that like I cried at the scene from the telenovela because <laughs> yes. like, Rogelio yes. was dying and Jane, it had oh, like yeah, that it was, was really, really resonant emotional. because Jane had written this like big scene and, and she wrote it really well even though it was supposed to be really goofy or whatever you were still like oh my god and I think this on on the season premiere we had you know this is where you really wish there was the everything would be okay music and I think it sort of clarifies things on a number of levels one it helps us like stay in pace with what the story is telling right so we know that that's how Jane feels but it's nice to have a runner Two, it also helps right. us like pinpoint what exactly the show is attempting to subvert at any given moment, right? Like I think it has a really fun like have your cake and eat it too way of being like this is the joke and now here's the joke and and it, mm-hmm. it not feeling hamfisted and that feeling like fun and authentic and winky rather than um, I don't know like over the top or too on the nose. Like I think it really it holds together really well. There's a kind of strange sorcery that happens when a when a television show or a movie tells you, here we are about to indulge in a cliche that you've seen a thousand times. We acknowledge that it's a cliche and watch us make fun of it, and then it works anyway. Yeah, I mean, And then it works anyway. And there's a lot of, like, (laughs) some of my favorite comedies of the last couple of decades are are movies that are, in theory, spoofs of a particular thing, but they're actually excellent examples of a thing (laughs) being spoofed, like Galaxy Quest. I was was thinking, like, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine about the Star Trek movies. He was saying, what are the best Star Trek movies? And I accidentally blurted out Galaxy Quest on my list. And it was like, in Galaxy Quest. And I was like, wait, technically that's not a Star Trek movie. But it is, but it is you know, in making fun of that kind of movie, it actually, at a certain point, it kind of forgets that it's a parody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you Team Michael <laughs> or Team Raphael? Oh, man. I was Team Michael, but I'm less and less interested in that dynamic. Just because he's almost... I mean, he's almost just too nice. I'll just, you know, not (laughs) to say that doesn't, I don't know. I think his character could use a little bit more edge. And not to say I'm so Team Raphael, but I would give a slight (laughs) edge to him. (laughs) I I don't, I don't really care. I really don't. I mean, like on these shows, like anytime there's any sort of a a, a triangle, it's like, who, you know, who do you want, who do you want the main character to end up with? I never, I never care about the answer to that. I just want to see what happens next. You never care? You don't care at all? I really don't. I just want to see the situations. I just want to see the situation yeah. as long as it seems like the right person to end up with i'm not rooting for anybody like i'm you know i'm rooting for the show to do the right thing and not be stupid <laughs> mostly and i think this is fresh in my mind because uh, uh working on an entry on moonlighting for this book <laughs> the thing that they you know when they brought mark Harmon in on the show as as the person who's sort of thwarting the david and maddie romance and then they give her yet another guy like the the season after that and like it's just like you know i'm not i guess in theory i should be rooting for david but i never was even as a teenager because he's such a horrible narcissistic asshole (laughs) but i'm not rooting for the other guys either because they were kind of boring like i wasn't rooting for anybody but what i was rooting for was the show to get its shit together yeah sure you know what about you margaret team raphael (laughs) i mean i will say there's a slight difference though i think the phenomenon Matt's talking about for Moonlighting, I would put more akin to the introduction of Jake on Scandal as like, oh, uh, maybe there's another guy we didn't even know about. Totally. Versus a show that has Jake. a baked in triangle like, yes. like Nolan Ben on Felicity, right? Right. right. So, ben. Uh, ben. 
no. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. You heard my spiel at the top. Do you really think that's from a Ben person? Oh, <laughs> Margaret. Oh, I'm sorry. No. Anyway, baked in, baked in. But I think like you have like there's a difference between a show where it sets up as part of its story that these are potential partners and a show that has sort of a fixed will they, won't they, and then we bring in secondary people to be like maybe some of this, right? Like, <laughs> uh, which I think is like a different, yeah. different. Right. plot mechanism. Right. Like what they did on Scandal. Sure, right. Because yes. they introduced Jake on Scandal yes. and it's like, well, maybe you want them to be together. And it's like, well, what? we already spent so much time on Fitz. So your team Fitz? No, yeah. no. First of all, the three of them obviously all want to fuck each other <laughs> so bad. The idea that Jake and Fitz don't super want to fuck is ridiculous. <laughs> like those guys want to fuck each other so bad. And they should. Like, that's fine. Oh, man. If Scandal went there, that's like how Carrie and The internet Bill, would explode. Yeah. The yeah. internet would actually explode. <laughs> so I believe... It needs to happen in the Oval Office if it happens. Oh, yes. yes. That has to yeah. happen in the Oval Office. Right on the desk. <laughs> she said wistfully. Yeah. Yes. I mean, they want to fuck. I think Carrie One of them at some point needs to look up... definitely want to fuck on Good Wife. I was going to say, it needs to, needs to look up yeah. at the seal. The presidential seal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, welcome to the fanfic corner. <laughs> I hope Shonda Rhimes is listening to this. <laughs> yeah. If she is, please put Kelly Bishop on Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> oh yeah, that's <laughs> this is my wish. Yes, my number one wish. Please, universe, make this so. <laughs> I think it could happen. And then world hunger solve it. <laughs> you know, there's only so much one of us can control, man. <laughs> 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 like, yeah. If anyone listening to this podcast can solve world hunger, please let us know <laughs> what we can also do. But I feel like we're a little closer to being able to get Kelly Bishop on a Shonda show. I, you know, she's already true. a big Gilmore Girls fan. There's a lot of Gilmore Girls crossover for the Shondaverse. Somewhere between Live Free or Die and Famous Potatoes, the truth lies. <laughs> Sorry. Well, <laughs> said like a true team, Ben. <laughs> well, going back to Jane the Virgin for just a second. So, Margaret, you were talking the other day about how the Raphael... Michael Jane dynamic has kind of come full circle. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, I think, you know, for a show that churns through plot really, really quickly and like a ton is constantly happening on Jane the Virgin, the actual like emotional through line of the show is moving really slowly, right? And that's like the love story between Jane and Raphael. And we get, you know, it has like fits and starts and it seems like it's going great. And then we back off and we get closer to it. And then we have like, well, may- maybe Michael is actually like the responsible, decent, like family man that that Jane wants. And, and we see that dynamic again in the season premiere. And then we have the moment where like Raphael's holding the baby. And if, you know, like, I don't think you have to be like hormonal to see that and be like, ah, perfect. <laughs> like, that's like the yeah. that's like this most right. like loving image. Right. And, and it's the dream. But it's also, you know, complicated by a lot of ideas. And so I think like that story is moving super slow. And I think that's what keeps Jane the Virgin feeling substantial. Right. Because I think all of the crazy other stuff that happens with the telenovela and with Sinrostro and, and Petra and all of that, like like how quickly we're moving through those stories and how slowly we're moving through Jane kind of figuring out how to mm-hmm. be the person she wants to be. And that moving along slowly but perceptibly, I think, is like really the sort of foundation of the show. And everything else adds color and splash and romance and, and joy and humor and all these feelings. But what we're really watching is like a pretty pragmatic mm-hmm. progress in and terms it, of Jane. And it kind of allows them 
the telenovela aspects of the show kind of allows them to take their time with the rest of it. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a show, we talk about this a lot, but the idea that like good shows have texture and no yes. good show is one thing all the time. And I think Jane the Virgin is a quintessential example of that, of it having a lot of things that work well. So it can be very funny. It can be very real. It can be totally female driven, right? We have like really great moments, but we also have like, I think really rich male characters, like having their own deals too. It's very romantic, but I wouldn't say it's primarily driven by romance. It can be no. very family oriented but it's also driven by like identity one of its main themes is what are the stories we tell right the yes. stories that everyone is attached to that's why we see them watch telenovelas that's why we hear abuela talk about the bible and then it's the show itself is telling us a story about itself and revising itself as it goes yeah. along which is also funny. so it's like and jane is an aspiring author we see her at book clubs and stuff right so we have all of these like threads that they drive at the sort of like fundamental movement of the show. But in any given episode, Jane the Virgin is doing a lot of things. So we're going to be talking about the greatest comedies of all times in the next couple of weeks. And we're curious if you have any favorites that you think are underrepresented on those kinds of lists, a show that you think is one of the greats or should be considered among the greats, but maybe gets ignored or overlooked or doesn't get its due. Let us know at tvquestions at vulture.com. That's it for this week's Vulture TV podcast. Don't forget to email us your questions or comments at tvquestions at vulture.com. We'd like to thank Henry Malofsky, Sam Dingman, Sarah Abdurrahman, Laura Mayer, and Andy Bowers. The Vulture TV podcast is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com panoply. And if you like the show, tell your friends and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. Just a reminder that we're doing a live taping of the Vulture TV podcast on Saturday, October 24th at 1 p.m. as part of the New York Television Festival. You can get free tickets at nytvf.com. Definitely go to that, people. This is going to be a lot of fun. Have fun. Super fun. Well, I'm Gazelle Mommy, and you can find me on Twitter at Gazellephant. I'm Margaret Lyons, and you can find me on Twitter at Margin Charge. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, and you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zoller-Seitz. Thanks for listening. 